This morning we continue our series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians, and we're jumping ahead just one passage. If you're tracking with us, I am not ignoring wives, submit to your husbands. Thank you, Steve Sage, for leaving me that last week. Steve's saying, I'm just going to preach one verse, and I don't know what's happening next. Um, But our children's membership is a special element this morning in the service, and so uh, the passage that we're going to look at right after Wives Submit to Your Husbands fits better with the theme, and so we're just flip-flopping, okay? We'll go back to um, what Paul says, and we won't skip anything ultimately. Here's the context. Back up in chapter 5, verse 15, this is what Paul wrote. We covered this a couple of weeks ago. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. And we talked about the context of Ephesus and Ephesus being a center of the worship of the Greek god Dionysus. And this is what Paul, we could say, is writing to the Christians at Ephesus. Don't be filled with wine. Don't get to the point of intoxication, which revelers believed would open themselves up to the control of this Greek God. Instead, be filled with the spirit of the one true God through faith in his son, Jesus. How can we be filled with the spirit? How can we have this profound spiritual experience? Paul tells us using five words. Speaking, singing, making music, giving thanks, and submitting. That last element of the five, how can we be filled with the Spirit, is so countercultural. It was then, 2,000 years ago. It still is today. It's so countercultural, and it takes Paul 22 verses that we're going to spend four Sundays covering this fifth element of how to be filled with the Holy Spirit, submission. First, he talks about marriage next week, and then he talks about parent relationship with children today. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. We have all been children with parents, and we desire, Lord, to listen to your word speak to us at whatever stage of life we may be in. Through your Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll simply follow Paul's thought through these four short verses and start with obey. There are two factors that I'm going to share with you. This is my sense that lead people to either ignore or water down this clear command that we find in verse 1 of chapter 6 to obey. One factor comes from our wider contemporary culture that despises obedience as something that prevents me from being true to myself. It prevents me from growing into all that I can be as an individual. 
Who are you to tell me what to do? That's prevalent in our society today. It's seen as constraining. It's seen as stifling individuality. I can't be who I need to become. Used to be some neighbor down the street wouldn't hesitate to tell a kid playing ball in the street to watch his mouth. Or teachers would call home about a problem in class and parents would actually believe them and speak to their children about what happened. And by the way, how have we lost, I don't mean to put this on the level of Scripture, but this is my personal question to you. How have we lost the, the, the social convention of having children address adults as Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so? It's not so much a, a matter of ego or social class as it is of maintaining this distinction God-ordained between children and adults. There's something about the way God has ordered society and family that enables flourishing in the development of our children. There's a second factor I would submit to you that uh, tends to result in the ignoring or the watering down of this clear command, children obey your parents, and it actually comes from within the church. It's the sense that uh, insisting on obedience is legalistic. And, and we're a, we preach the gospel of grace, and so we're, we're not going to do that. Instead, uh, we extend grace by not drawing firm boundaries, hoping that affirmation and encouragement bring about a heart that willingly and joyfully seeks to submit to authority, obeys. But neither picture is what Paul is teaching here. Remember, this is the uh, second of three key examples that he gives starting at the end of chapter 5, to explain what in our lives submitting means and submitting as the fifth element of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. He's giving us very practical counsel. He's telling us how to have a deeper spiritual experience of God and unpacking here this child-parent relationship. There is no avoiding the clarity of this command Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And notice that Paul is directly addressing the children. He's imprisoned in Rome, writing this letter to these dear friends that he hasn't seen in a while. He had spent almost three years with them. And he fully expects that in the gathering of God's people, reading this letter, children are present. And he has something to say to them. And so I want to imitate the Apostle Paul in sharing a direct word with you kids and including any teens who are here. I know you don't like obeying. It's a downer for all of us, children especially, at home, at school, on the playground, at the club, at the sport. But it's here in the Bible for your blessing. Believe it or not, right after Paul says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, he quotes the fifth commandment of the Ten Commandments given to Moses, honor your father and mother, and he rewords the promise that followed it, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. In other words, God is telling you that there are benefits that come to you when you obey your parents, 
having the right attitude of humility and submitting to the authority that God has placed over your life leads to flourishing and greater freedom somehow. Try this illustration on for size. Suppose you are on the basketball team or you're trying out. You aspire to be a basketball player in school. And at the first practice, the coach lays out some rules. And quite frankly, it's, it's pretty clear. You need to obey these rules. You show up on time for practice. You hustle until the whistle blows. You respect other people. No cussing on the, on the court. You run the plays as you've been instructed. You give max effort. You listen when you're instructed by the coaches. And on game time, on game day, you wear your uniform like you're supposed to wear it. And when you obey, every sport, every activity has these expectations. The coach can more and more get out of the way so that you can do what you want to do, play ball, compete. And, and if you do this, you might not win the game, but you'll be a good teammate. And if you don't obey, you'll be on the bench because you're not participating in this in this together, one-anothering activity that only succeeds if everyone is on the same page. When you obey, there's flourishing and there's freedom. Obeying your parents, Paul says, is in the Lord, verse 1. The benefits that God promises aren't merely spiritual and eternal, but they certainly start there. That's the most important that Paul is emphasizing because like everyone else, you're a sinner, And so learning submission to authority reminds you that God is king and you have rebelled against him. There is a problem. And yet, in his perfect love towards you who are unlovable, he gave his own son. He willingly sacrificed his beloved that you might be forgiven and set free. How? Can you do anything less than embrace the perfect will of one who loves you and desires your flourishing that much that he would pay the ultimate price? Can you not trust his heart when God's word and through God's word your parents expect something that you don't want to give or do or say? Can you trust that God's heart for you is as good as it gets? When you can't admit you've messed up, when you reject authority because you know better, it's because you think of yourself more highly than you ought, Paul writes in Romans chapter 12. It's because you want to be independent, which includes being your own savior, the only ruler of your own life. But real biblical strength instead sounds like this. I am weak in sin. I cannot run anything, let alone save myself. But God in Christ has rescued me. And that faith transforms me and enables me to long to respond to honor God in obedience to his ultimate authority and through him to those he's placed over me. You can't do this on your own. You can't merely try harder to um, obey. It can only truly result through a transformed heart through faith in Jesus Christ, the Savior. So kids, 
if your parents ask you at lunchtime, do you remember anything that Pastor Peter said in the sermon? This is the one thing I want you to remember. Parents too. Adults at large. Salvation for anyone is only possible because a son obeyed his father. Salvation is possible for anyone only because a son obeyed his father. Jesus said, I've I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Obedience to the very end is at the heart of our salvation. Secondly, don't exasperate. Paul turns his attention now to the parent side of this command, and he focuses on fathers. Do not exasperate your children. Another way to translate that is do not provoke them to anger. Colossians 3.21 is a, a parallel passage, and it puts it this way. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. So dads, if you're constantly berating, yelling, domineering, letting everyone know in the room, especially the, the children under your charge, who's boss, you will tear them down and discourage them. It's kind of obvious, isn't it? Paul finds it serious enough to, to have a word to the, to the parents, but especially to the fathers, don't do this. Yes, children have to obey your parents, but in that um, two-way relationship, your response is not to be discouragement and embittering. Instead, train and instruct. Swinging to the other side of passivity and permissiveness and silence is no better. We're going we're to go back and forth and talking about these ends of the spectrum. Because if you stay silent, if you're passive in parenting your silence is going to create a vacuum into which other voices and influences will shape your child's influential, um, moldable heart and mind and lead towards godlessness. Instead of exasperating and encouraging, Paul says, train and instruct. Good coaches don't go passive. They they don't say, hey, here's a ball. You guys play around for an hour. I'm going to check some email and I'll see how you're doing the day before the game. Nor do they swing to the other end of the spectrum and go all Bobby Knight and yell and demean and put people down, even if some such coaches have won national championships. The ends do not justify the means because we're not parenting towards some sort of trophy, some sort of worldly definition of success and accomplishment. We are parenting... Raising children well has nothing to do with worldly success and accomplishment, measures and badges and trophies and getting into Ivy League schools. Raising children well involves cultivating a secure, trusting, loving heart in a child through saving faith in Jesus. Are we doing that, parents? Is that our value? Parents who are tempted toward passivity and permissiveness you can diagnose your own hearts as early as 10 months old in your child. At least that's what Cedar and I would say from our experience. If your child does not respect your authority, does not heed your no or your positive guiding instruction as young as 10 months old, 
what makes you think they will listen to teachers or employers' authoritative instructions when they're older, let alone the countercultural, self-denying Word of God spoken centuries ago by an unseen God through questionable human authors, a skeptic might say. What makes you think this little human being over whom you tower at 10 months old who doesn't heed your authoritative word is going to listen to an unseen God years later? These things have spiritual consequences. That's why it's here in the Scriptures. I am not saying that obedient little toddlers automatically become passionate Christ followers. I'm not saying that. I am saying that if you reject your role as God-assigned authority over this life, if you set aside biblical stewardship that God has given to you, if you absorb the messages of secular culture and buy into child development experts who tell you that healthy parenting is all about giving your kids freedom uh, so that they can express their individuality and find their own way and live out their own unique identity, etc., you are enabling a repeat of the sin of the Tower of Babel, Genesis 11. You're aiding and abetting your children in making a name for themselves. And that's one step away from godlessness. Children need disciplined love and loving discipline. Disciplined love is not indulgent. It doesn't give your children whatever they want. It gives them what they most need as you discern that through word and prayer. Disciplined love aims to cultivate contentment in your child whether or not you've said yes or no. That shapes humility. It builds gratitude. It trains respect for authority, which is at the heart of this idea of submission. Disciplined love seeks to extend grace, looks for opportunities to build up, to share generously with the child. It, it recognizes the individuality of this or that child, um, but it, it's always and only about and aiming towards and working for what is richest blessing, not wealth, freedom, opportunity, education, you name it, but growth in Christ. Anything that orders your priorities, that shapes your relationship to the younger generation, that aims at something else, is not truly the love of God, because it's choosing something that will drive them away from God. Loving discipline, secondly, is not overbearing. It asserts God-given authority, but authority and, and firmness in love as a fellow sinner who understands the power of sin and, and the lure and temptations behind sin and the failures of the heart when we give in to sin. Loving discipline does not make unreasonable demands. It doesn't mete out harsh punishment. It sees that a child needs to be directed towards Christ, which includes conviction of sin. Exasperating a child. Parents, if there's one thing that I want you to remember from this morning, it's this. 
exasperating a child has much more to do with our sinful hearts than it has to do with a child's misbehaving. We need to look in the mirror. It brings us lastly to bring them up. Don't exasperate, Paul says. Instead, as the older language puts it, bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That is a far higher calling than typical parental goals of keeping them alive and entertained and getting them ready for college. And then we're done. Bring them up. What does Paul have in mind? First, the word behind that phrase can be translated provide food for. And so there's a very mundane background to this bringing them up idea. And we know how this works at one level. Feed your children solid meals. They grow in stature. Do we know as well, as obviously, as intuitively, feed them the Word of God and they grow in Christ-likeness? No good parent would think to starve their child, to withhold nutrition intentionally. Do we withhold because of apathy or passivity or better things to do? Feeding our children the Word of God in a regular diet? That sets up the next two words, training and instruction. Each of these terms has can have a, a positive educational element and a negative correcting rebuking one. They go hand in hand. This takes time. Agonizingly slow process. It involves sacrificial investment. Meal after meal to grow a child. My man child was in the first service from coming home under five pounds to, I said that, 6'3", um, larger than life, it takes time. It doesn't grow. Uh, it doesn't happen overnight. In math class, moving from learning how to count from 1 to 10 in order to algebra, let alone calculus, it's agonizingly, painfully slow. If a coach tirelessly works with you on technique, and if he corrects bad habits, and occasionally makes you run laps to remind you of the need for mental and physical discipline, how much more greater responsibility does the Christian parent have to nurture patiently, painstakingly, to develop trust, to protect a a child's heart and mind, to, yes, um, shape godly behavior in a child, but ultimately to nurture a young heart towards saving faith in Jesus. If you're not actively training and instructing, you are exasperating. Silence and passivity are choices to turn your child away from the Lord and let chaos reign. The authority of a parent Don't get me wrong, it's not to boss your children around until they're 18 and tell them exactly what to do and how to think. The authority of a parent is focused in discipling, training kind of authority, just like in the church. A pastor or elder's authority is not to have you run decisions by us and have us sort of be the decision maker, you know, do this and don't do that, take this job, marry this person. That's a 
a, a corruption of spiritual leadership, if that's your picture at all. No, the, the spiritual leader's authority is rooted in the training, nurturing, word-based authority of God and coming alongside one another in real life. If I could parent our kids all over again, and believe me, I'm tempted sometimes to, to, to wish I had a do-over. I would focus first and foremost on my sinful, lazy, selfish heart. The, the, the me of 20 years ago didn't need to read more books. Uh, I, I needed to be on our, my knees more, prayerfully, patiently strategizing with the help of God's Spirit as to how to train and nurture and instruct my child and shepherd their hearts towards Jesus. Much more of that and much less of sort of reacting to the situation when it comes up. This fits what Paul wrote in the verses before, this investment that is sacrificial and, and painstaking. He, he said, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Make that sacrificial investment. Give yourself up for the benefit of the other. That's what Christian parenting starts and ends with. Toward that end, two bits of application to leave with you. Um, one, looking back to the prior verses, any counsel for Christian parents starts with this. Cultivate a God-honoring marriage relationship that flows out of this creational design that God puts in place for a man and a woman a husband and a wife, a father and a mother. It's the first note of Christian parenting. Focus on your marriage. And the second thought is this, prioritize corporate and family worship. One of the most important things, if you're a parent, that you could do is to demonstrate with the priority of your calendar that we give our first fruits to the Lord. This is the first day of the week. We give our first fruits to the Lord. We gather with God's people for worship. Nothing else is a high enough competing priority in our lives to grab that moment in our calendar. And then that's complemented with throughout the week at home, time carved out for family worship. Focus on word and prayer, singing and making music in your heart to the Lord, part of what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Time set apart in which it's natural to talk about the things of eternity and to shepherd little hearts with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It, it can't be done. Some families hardly eat dinner together throughout the week. It cannot be done, folks, if we truly have this highest value in mind for our children. Last thought. I know some of you have had lousy parents. And my heart breaks for you because you did not have this emotional or relational or social or spiritual security and fear and anxiety result. 
Maybe you had a parent telling you lies about who you are and you are still struggling because you believe those lies. And when you hear mention of your parents, your heart shrinks a little bit. I'm sorry. Some of you, on the other hand, have had marvelous parents who have sacrificially, painstakingly, tenderly loved you who have instructed you carefully and graciously, and when you think of them, your heart grows. Be thankful. Whether you've had bad parents or good parents, today, this is what each of us needs to seek the ultimate, perfect, heavenly Father, whose love alone can empower you to forgive your lousy parents how they have sinned against you and how they continue to make this impact over you today, decades later. Only the love of the perfect Heavenly Father can empower you to let go and not be defined any longer by that brokenness. And only the love of this perfect Father can show you that your wonderful earthly parents, on the other hand, were only ever pointers to the one who created you who invites you to draw near in intimacy and call him Abba, Father, and who alone can fully satisfy the desire of your heart that he created you with to be loved and to fully belong. Let's pray. God, Abba, Father. Oh, so much of our brokenness comes because we are looking around in all the wrong places for what you long to give us as our heavenly dad. You love us perfectly. You gave up your own son for us. Do a work in our hearts and minds that we might see that your will for us is perfect. It lacks nothing. And obedience is for our flourishing and freedom. Reveal your heart to us through your word and by your spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning is a unique Sunday. Not only are we celebrating the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, but we're bringing into membership a handful of our children as communicant members. And so I want to invite uh, any elders in the service. Uh, I I see Steve and Donald to join me and, and John Gregory and Pastor Steve on the stage. I want to invite Sophia and her family as well to join us as I explain um, what it is that our children have gone through. Uh, The other four children were in the first service, Sophia in this service. Um, The the children's membership process has similarities and dissimilarities to our adult membership process. What's similar is the the end, um, meeting with elders whose job it is It's to discern a profession of faith. Do these children understand what it means to be a sinner and and have they profess faith in Jesus Christ? Do they understand the things of God? Is their heart captured by his love? As best as we can, that's our job to discern. The beginning is different. Instead of asking, uh, as we do the adults, to come on a Saturday morning to a a twice-a-year inquirers class, Karen uh, Jacobson, our director of children's ministry, and her team kick off... uh, a home-based process that starts at the beginning of the school year um, and is guided by Karen and select elders. Um, But that 
communicates our priority, our, our philosophy of ministry in terms of child rearing and discipling our children, and, and that is that the primary responsibility lies with mom and dad at home. And so our job as a church is to come alongside you, equip you, give you some resources, help you along, uh, but your job is to talk about the things of Christ to your children. Sophia's done that with her parents. She's been... Um, um, uh, she's had dialogue with two of our elders, and this morning she's ready to profess faith using these same membership vows we ask our adult prospective members to affirm. And uh, Sophia will also receive the sacrament of baptism following these vows and um, receive the Lord's Supper for the first time as one who is in Christ and is invited to the table of God's family. And so... Sophia, can I ask you to affirm these vows? Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure and without hope except in his sovereign mercy? Do you hope in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will attempt to live in a manner consistent with being a follower of Christ? I do. Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? I do. And do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and to the spiritual oversight of this church's session? And do you promise to promote and protect its purity and peace? I do. Um, John, would you grab the bowl? And I'll ask you to come over here, Sophia. Sophia, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. May the blessing of this triune God descend upon you and remain with you now and forevermore. Lord, for this young woman who has walked with her family, with you, who has read scripture, who has learned the things of the gospel and has now come to a place in her young life to profess faith in Jesus as her Lord and Savior. We give you thanks for what you have done in her. And we ask that now you would do mighty things through her in her own family, among friends at school and in community and here in her church of which she is a communicant member. Strengthen her by your Holy Spirit by this sacramental meal she's about to receive with us. Fill her with spirit gifts and enable her, Lord, to be a, a sharp instrument in your hands as you accomplish healing, resurrecting of the dead all through your power at work in her. Cause her to be light with the source of Jesus the Son and bless her richly now as she walks with you as a redeemed daughter of the living God. We pray in the precious and saving and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Would you join me in welcoming Sophia to membership in our church?
We're going to serve Sophia and her family first after Steve and I set the table, and then we will proceed to our typical four stations and invite everyone else to come forward and receive the Lord's Supper. Scriptures teach us that when we have union with Christ by faith, we also have communion with the saints. And so it's fitting on a a Sunday in which we receive new members, we have the sacrament of baptism, that as we prepare our hearts for this table, we would remind ourselves of what we affirm to be true along with brothers and sisters in Christ from around the world and throughout time. And so as we prepare for the table, I'd invite you to stand and recite together what it is we believe from the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. This is the Lord's table. Uh, Eating and drinking are acts of faith, and so we would invite all who have faith in Christ, if you have membership in his body uh, through faith in Christ uh, to come and receive this means of grace as we are nourished by the Spirit through this meal. If you're here today and you're not in that place uh, or, or there's a, some sin in your life that you're just not willing to let go of, we would encourage you to use this time instead to reflect. And we have prayers printed for you in your bulletin, prayers seeking truth, prayers for those struggling with sin, a prayer of belief. And we would encourage you, if that's helpful, to let those focus your time of reflection during this time, but, but um, don't participate in this table. But as I said, if, if uh, you are seeking the Lord and seeking to honor Him and longing for more grace to do so, uh, we would invite you to come. Parents, if your children are here and they have not been admitted yet to the table, uh, we would invite you to bring them forward with you and we'll pray a prayer of blessing over them. Salvation is only possible for anyone because the Son obeyed His Father. He didn't want to obey. He even asked if there was another way. And when he received the answer of no, he said in submission, yet not my will, but yours be done. Earlier that same night, he saw fit to establish the sacramental meal for us who don't want to obey, who have gone our own way. Unlike Jesus, we have actually strayed. We have actually disobeyed. We have actually rebelled. He was perfect and sinless. And yet he saw fit to, to establish this sacrament for us that we might be nourished, that we might be empowered to submit, that we might remember the costs that he bore on the cross, that we might live in freedom. On that night, Jesus took the bread. He gave thanks to the Father. 
he broke the bread, gave it to his disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body which is given for you. Do this whenever you eat of it in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper was ended, he took the cup. Again, he gave thanks to the Father, gave the cup to his disciples and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this whenever you drink of it in remembrance of me. For when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again in glory. Let's pray. Lord, oppress upon us the wonder that this meal represents. As familiar as we may be, remind us of the cost of body and blood behind bread and wine. Feed us, nourish us, show us the glorious gospel of Jesus, whether it's for the first time in fresh faith or for the countless times when we are reminded and still need to come face to face with the fullness of our sin and the greater fullness of Jesus' atoning sacrifice. Feed us, strengthen our faith, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.